Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg Srizavasti, new installment of Find Your Film. If you're in the New Jersey, New York area, there are a couple events of events that you might be interested in. First off, I interviewed filmmaker Tom Ryan. He is the director behind a feature called Return to the Theater of Terror. And this movie is inspired by Tom Ryan's youthful obsession and love for such iconic shows as The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone. So was able to interview Tom Ryan and he talked about the inspiration of his movie, the the challenge of actually being an indie filmmaker and how he's been able to grow a really solid and dependable, loyal and talented film community within the area to actually where he's actually producing and directing his own movies. So that's it's a very if you're into DIY indie filmmaking, this is a very interesting and insightful interview with I have with Tom Ryan. Okay, so again, return to the theater of terror playing at Smodcastle Cinemas Saturday, April 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, Saturday, Saturday, April 22nd. This is a very timely interview. Now, second timely piece is an interview that Eric Holmes did for Subway Cinema. Subway Cinema is conducting a festival, a festival called the Old School Kung Fu Fest Sword Fighting Heroes Edition. And it starts, I believe, it starts on April 21st to the 23rd at New York City's Metrograph Theater. And then also on April 28th through the 30th, there is a huge bunch of great movies being uh, spotlighted within 12, 12 movies. And I believe they are part of this genre called the Wuxia uh, genre, genre, W-U-X-I-A. I just recently watched a touch of Zen, and it's, which is one of the films that is being spotlighted in this old school Kung Fu Fest film festival. And it's, by the way, it's a really great film. So yeah, this should be very interesting. I will also put links on subwaycinema.com where you can get tickets. If you're, if you go, if you're a Metrograph theater goer, or if you like the Wuxia film genre and these movies, there's some really interesting movies that will be part of the festival. Let me look at some of the films here. Full details right now. Wait one second. Okay, I'm back. So this is here. At the festival, you're going to see the U.S. premiere of The King of Wuxia, an epic documentary about King Hu, the director behind such classics as A Touch of Zen, The Valiant Ones, and The Fate of Lee Khan. He is best known for the movie A Touch of Zen. By the way, A Touch of Zen is, I think, over two and a half or three hours. I saw it a week ago on the Criterion channel. Fantastic, fantastic beautiful film. Looking forward to actually seeing more of the films that are spotlighted as part of the Old School Kung Fu Film Festival. Okay, It says here, Old School Kung Fu Fest 10th Anniversary Sword Fighting Heroes Edition. And specifically to promote this, Eric Holmes interviewed Goran Topolovic, and he has been programming and writing, I'm looking at his bio right now, programming and writing about East Asian cinema for over 20 years, and he serves as the program, the board director and programmer at Subway Cinema. Most importantly, for the purposes of this interview, he is one of the founders of the old school Kung Fu Fest. Okay. So you're going to get more insights for, from Eric's interview with Gorn Topolovic. And here's again, specifically, it's playing this weekend, April 21st to the 23rd, and then the following week, April 28th to the 30th. So for both the Subway Cinema production of 10th Old School Kung Fu Fest, as well as the Smod Castle Cinema's 
screening of the Return Return to the Theater of Terror, directed by Tom Ryan. All that stuff will be in our show notes. We're going to start off first with my interview with Tom Ryan, and then we're going to go dive right into Eric Holmes' interview with, again, Goran Topolovic. And I apologize if I butchered his name and butchered Wusha or Wuxia, however you pronounce it. All I know is I've seen a touch of De- touch of Zen and I really love it. I, I don't know if it's called touch of Zen or a touch of Zen. Let me look, look it up right now. But that is if you are not even, if you are nowhere near, by the way, um, if you're n- nowhere near Metrograph and there's no way you can actually see old school Kung Fu Fest, Check out it. Check it out on the Criterion Channel. It is a fantastic, fantastic movie. It's a tiny. It's a 1971 Taiwanese wuxia film, co-edited, written, and directed by King Hu. Again, King Hu. That the big one for the fest is that documentary on King Hu. Okay, I believe it's called The King of Wuxia. Okay, I'm not on that page right now. I'm trying to use my little noggin to remember that documentary. I'm blabbing too much. Let's get to the interviews, starting with Tom Ryan and then Eric Holmes' interview with Gorn. Take care, guys. Thanks again for listening. Here over at Find Your Film. And talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing well, Greg. How are you? Yes, I'm glad you're doing well, Tom, because listeners here over at Find Your Film Podcast, I have tried to get Tom on the show for the last two weeks. I screwed up the last two weeks, Tom, so I apologize for the last couple of times when I flaked out or there was a miscommunication. So thank you for your patience. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. You know, first off... Oh, no worries. Look, I was telling you how much this is for our my co-host, Eric Holmes. This is totally in his wheelhouse, also in my wheelhouse, too, because I love DIY filmmaking, indie filmmaking. But I think you've taken it to another level where this is not just you do one indie film and you're trying to parlay it to something else. You're, you've been doing this for at least over a decade. Can you just talk about the aesthetic of what you have been doing the last decade plus as an indie filmmaker? Yeah. Um, thanks for the question. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a hard and it's a long road and, um, it's a lot of, uh, learning on the job. Uh, but it's, it's been a, a great, a great, um, hobby slash career for me uh, over the past 10 years. I've got to work with a lot of wonderful people. Um, uh, basically my beginning process is to write, write a script that um, I really think will uh, make an impact with an audience and make an impact with the actors. And then I'll share it with some actors that I like and we'll try to make a great movie together. I mean, that's as basic um, of a foundation as what we try to do is. So over the past 10 years, what I've been trying to do is figure out ways to do that where we can work within our means, meaning resources, meaning money, um, um, I write, I write with that in mind. Um, obviously, we cast with that in mind. We can't get any, you know, you know Hollywood actors to, to lead our indie films. Um, so um, it, it's all kind of revolves around that. And uh, it's it's been a very fun part of the learning process over the past 10 years, how to spend your own money or, or budget a film to what you can afford, how to raise money, um, how to very wisely spend money. Um, and all the tricks that you could do in between to save yourself costs. Um, and so that's that's a big part of the journey. The creative part is the best part of the journey. And, uh, you know, of course, learning from the rest of the community and watching your fellow independent filmmakers and things that they do is very inspirational as well. And it kind of it's it's just kind of built a great momentum in, in what I've been doing now over the past decade. And hopefully I will continue 
on a uh, an upward uh, spiral. <laughs> you, you know, Tom, over the past decade, have you learned that sometimes do you have a balance between raising your own money via crowdfunding, that one element, or is it just putting your own money into your film, which some people say, don't do that. What are some of the lessons mm. you've learned? Have you achieved a balance where there's no one absolute way as far as generating revenue to fund your respective films? Yeah, I think as a filmmaker, I'll take any any means of raising money or getting money uh, that, that are, that are uh, possible. So I definitely don't eliminate anything. Uh, what I would say about putting your money into your own films, I, Yes, it's 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 a good practice not to invest in your own films if the reason you're making that film is to turn a profit, because you'll probably wind up pouring a lot of money into a film that if it does not turn that profit could really hurt you personally and your livelihood, which would be foolish. The money that I put into my films is to the degree of completing the film, um, satisfying my need to complete that film. Um, as opposed to thinking that it's going to come back to me tenfold or at least come back to me at all. As a filmmaker, we kind of always know that it's, it's, you just hope that people um, appreciate your work and, 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 you know, subscribe to you, whether they're, they're, they're giving you money for a DVD or investing money or donating money to the film ahead of time. I've done Indiegogo's for me. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's been great. Um, we've raised uh, a lot of money from a lot of fans on Indiegogo. It's just very nerve wracking for me um, because you're always watching it. It just feels like you're always when the donations don't come in on one day, for instance, you start to get nervous that you've lost momentum. Um, it's just a very nerve wracking thing for me. I am, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really in the, in the market right now where I'm looking for more, more like investors that can, that can cover the cost of the film. And we do have, um investment returns on that uh by trying to sell the film that to me would make me a lot more comfortable um but the fans are great and and they have they have um, funded our projects um the theater of terror and uh return to the theater of terror the sequel anthology that we recently uh completed their dollars went a long way in helping us get that made and we appreciate the heck out of them they buy the dvds and they they support us at conventions and stuff so we do have a great following of of fans and um, that show us a lot of support. Um, raising the money is just the hardest part and the worst part. Most filmmakers will tell you they hate that part of making films because it's just um, it's just not not something that we want to talk about is money, how much we're going to make and how much we're going to spend. And how, we, we just want to talk about the creative process. So it feels yeah. very mind numbing, to be honest. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's but it's of course, it's a necessary part of the the business. And that's why we have so many great producers involved in these movies. And they they go out there and they sniff out the money and the funding and uh, make them happen. But again, we're we're an independent film. We don't surpass you know, our, our highest budgeted film to date was probably about $20,000. That's so, insane. Um, That's amazing that you've been able to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm surprised sometimes myself, but you know, when, you know, when you're in it and your back is against the wall, you find very creative ways to get your films made. And I also say like part of the process is I don't write outside of my um, capabilities. And so, you know, that's why I haven't done my huge action film yet with, with, race cars and explosions and helicopters and stuff yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know if you're Generation X or the, the generation after, but I know for with my generation, we really loved anthology series. I my personal was of course the Twilight Zone, so it's very very common to love the Twilight Zone. But were, were the anthology format was it always a passion of yours as a child, or is it something that you grew into as you matured as a cinephile and as a storyteller? I think it was since I was a child because I grew up watching episodes of The Twilight Zone or um, I watched The Outer Limits or Night Gallery or Tales from the Crypts, Amazing Stories, Creep Show. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's just tons of them. Trilogy of Terror, Cat's Eye. Um, I always loved the format because it, you got a bunch of stories in one. That's what I felt like. I could sit there and watch a movie or I could sit there and watch an anthology. And with the anthology, I get all these different stories and all these great characters, and especially when you're watching all these great celebrity appearances by people that you've known from other movies and they're in these films, it's always just this great nostalgic feel about that. And I've always really enjoyed it. I think where it came into my personal um, uh, focus as a filmmaker uh, was I had just finished a, a, a feature film uh, called Faces uh, back in 2017 or so. I had just completed that film and I was looking to get into another feature and I did for some that that film was about 17 days on location and it was my first feature and um it was very stressful I mean I had a great time making that film but I but but just generally speaking the the amount of work that we had to do on us on just on no budget and the amount of running around and stuff that we had to do was incredible and I kind of felt going into another feature, I said, you know, I, I really don't know if I want to commit to one set of actors and, and, and locations and, and shooting this long you know, periods again. So I kind of came up with the idea of doing an anthology series where we just do a bunch of short films. And I felt that we could shoot that in such a way where we're shooting on we're on location for two or three days at a pop for each short film, limited locations for that um, limited cast for those. And we could just pop these out quickly. And then um, just kind of sewn together. And I said, I love doing anthologies. And another very appealing thing about that to me is the fact that we get to do such a diversely themed film where you have robots and you have time travel and you have ancient curses and you have ghosts and giant worms and dolls and, and you know, all this kind of different stuff that that it got me very excited about knowing that I would work on that next project as soon as I wrap this one up. And just gave us a great momentum. And, um, you know, obviously with this, the second film that we did, we actually shot the first one and completed it one week prior to the COVID lockdowns that were supposed to last two weeks and eventually lasted for almost two and a half years. Yeah. And uh, we shot throughout COVID um, to complete the film. But I, I, I think that kind of hindered the progress a little bit um, scheduling and all that kind of stuff was a little difficult. And so that slowed down the process. Um, but all in all, it's just, it was just something that gave me a lot of creative opportunities um, w at, while creating a feature without committing to one storyline or one story arc or one theme. I had all these different opportunities to tell these different stories and work with different actors and do it all back to back to back to back. Um, it was really an appealing idea to me. And um, that's kind of why I said, let's do it. And we made we made two anthologies in a row. How awesome was it for you to do Soothsayer because of that 
black and white aesthetic and it sort of harkens i'm assuming you mentioned shows like the outer limits really blatantly in a good way shows your love for that form and then you as a director you get to actually have that production under your belt with these actors and the really interesting story and you're also saying something about you know fatalism and living in the moment so what was that experience like for you on suicide Oh, Suisei was is was fantastic and definitely a dream come true for me as a director and and just growing up watching a lot of classic Hollywood and the drama yeah. and the and the acting and the, the 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 camera angles and the shots and uh uh so much of that we got to recreate for this film. And uh, we just had a brilliant cast, Anthony Grasso, uh Dennis Wee, Samantha Johnson, um just perfect, perfect in their roles. Um, you know, we actually built the time machine um, from a drawing I had done, a sketch I had done. And the story within itself of building the time machine is amazing. Uh, amazing experience with my buddy, uh, Rodrigo Bustamante, who was really the uh, the guy behind all the electronics on and all the moving parts. Um, and then the locations, of course, we shot in Bloomfield College in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and we shot in Verona Castle. And we show up to wow. Verona Castle, which is the, the main location exterior of the film. And uh, we pull up that morning to shoot there. And uh, you can see in the film, there is a thick fog that is all over the surrounding area and covering the castle. And uh, wow. that was such a wonderful way to start the day off, knowing that this is what we were going to have as our exteriors. And um just set the tone for everything. It's a, it's a beautiful location. Just really set the tone for everything for us. I really love that whole idea about the the, the term self fulfilling prophecy is so resonant with soothsayer. And um, you know, so that was great for you. But then I think what's really interesting, without giving too much away, the idea behind Splinter, and you're saying the idea about the, there's some kind of curse, but it really doesn't, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I love the way you took the story. What was your passion behind that material? Because it didn't go the way I was thinking it was going to. And sometimes not, not being part of the problem doesn't, doesn't mean you won't, it, it, it's not going to always end happy for, for a pr- protagonist or something. Yeah, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, Splinter was a, it was a great short story. Uh, uh, my, one of my producers, Todd Starooch had uh, written and submitted for the anthology. And we really liked the idea of the native American, the plight of the native American, the history. Um, uh, and, and, we really wanted to kind of tell that story, but tell it from the perspective of someone that um, is basically outside of, of that history. Right. Just kind of witnessing the story unfold, because I think it kind of it, it, the, the story kind of asks a couple of important questions at the same time without beating you over the head with with anything. Um it's 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 a it's kind of a hard luck story. <laughs> yeah. It's hard not to give it, it not to give too much away and, and discuss it in detail. But um, I think it's pretty cool because a lot of stories within this ilk, they there are a lot of A to B rede- uh, revenge stories or linear. This is what's going to happen. But sometimes right. I like the idea about wrong place at the wrong time. And mm-hmm. sometimes fate will come your way. And 
there's really nothing you did, right? So I yes. thought that was really cool. Yes, yeah. yes, for sure. And that was a fun one for that. And and that's a that's a favorite discussion too that we usually have at the Q and A's following that film is about that very topic. Oh, that's amazing. So look, I've seen your return to the theater terror is. I'm looking at, it's two hours and 29 minutes. I'm looking forward to the other stories within the anthology, but watching these two shorts, which aren't really shorts, or they feel like standalone films, which are really cool to me. What are your fans like? Because it's, I'm sure you get a diverse amount of people who really love your movies. And I think one of them, they must be really a people like you and me who have a, they hearken back to some of the, those great films from the past, but I'm sure you have a a cross section of people who really appreciate your work. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, part of what I try to do as a filmmaker and especially trying to uh, appeal to a broader audience and get my work out there is I try to make films that I loved when I was younger. Um, and, and, and so I try to make films that appeal to anyone and everyone. Um, I try not to create content for a niche crowd or for a niche taste mm-hmm. in, in, in any genre, because my greatest experiences ever at the theater is when I was with a packed house and everyone was applauding and standing and cheering for films and screaming at the same time. And it was a very communal experience of people who just loved going to the movies. Um, and so I try to create movies that, uh, that could really appeal to a broader audience. We have a lot of horror fans that like our work because that's kind of the community that, began everything for me um, when I made my first short film day nine, which was a zombie f- uh, film. So that was where I really started there. And we have a lot of great fans in the horror community, but I try not to limit our promotion or marketing to just horror fans because like the twilight zone um, yeah. or the outer limits or anything, I feel like that format appeals to a broader audience. And there are, there are people that, are that love jaws that are not horror fans there are people that love the exorcist that are not generally horror fans they're just film lovers and they saw these and these experiences were great for them and so i want to try to make films that we can appeal to most people and um you know obviously that just that just opens up your audience and and gives you more opportunities to to share your work Speaking of sharing your work, are there more screenings down the road for Return to the Theater of Terror? You also have your Facebook and your Instagram channels, your social media, and then also you have theateroftear.net. You mentioned physical mm-hmm. media, et cetera. How can people support your work? Yeah, you could you could you could go to theateroftear.net and um you could pre-purchase our film Return to the Theater of Terror. Um, we're, we're going to be having uh, Blu-rays available of that, um, with some great extras on it, which is what I'm currently working on. <laughs> um, oh, cool. What kind yeah. of extras, uh, what are you working on right now? Because it's, I guess, uh, you're really yeah. planning and working. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a behind the scenes, look at the film, the making of the film, some of the great stories behind the short films and what we had to go through and what fell in our lap and, what we planned and altered and it'll, you'll see the making of the time machine. You'll see a lot of behind <laughs> the scenes um, of, of just the making of the anthology and where I'll share my perspective on make, you know, the making of the film and what we had to do to get it done. And um, 
you know, I probably have some input from my special effects artists and, and yeah. uh, we, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I, that, that really got me into filmmaking when I was younger was actually seeing behind the scenes, making up stuff, yeah. the creative process really stirred that artist in me. So um, yeah, we're going to have that. They, they can go to the website and pre-order that. Um, they can also buy the original film, the theater of terror, uh, which is still available on that site uh, and Blu-ray and in DVD. Oh, cool. and, um, you know, give our page a like, subscribe to our newsletter. We like to set out a, a lot of um, heads up, casting calls, screenings. And you asked me about the screening. Our next screening is going to be in uh, Smod Castle Cinemas in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, uh, mm. the theater that's er- owned by Ernie O'Donnell and Kevin Smith. And uh, they're bringing independent films back to the forefront by by uh, giving us the opportunity to screen our films there in the theater. So that's going to be happening on April 22nd at 1.30 p.m. So we have plenty of time for a great after party. And uh, yeah, it's a great little theater. Dumb question. That's not the theater in your film, right? Not at all. It is not. The theater in my film is the Lafayette in Suffern, New York. And it's uh, a beautiful, beautiful little classic theater. How did you, did you go there as a youth or how did you get that? Because that's a beautiful location to so, set the table. Yeah. Yeah. The, our first film, The Theater of Terror, we actually shot the wraparound story in, which is very similar to this in the sequel, the same character, Colin, I play in the first film. And uh, that was the landmark Lowe's Theater in Jersey City. And that was a, that was a theater that I grew up going to and probably saw some of the greatest movies ever in that theater Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire wow. Strikes Back and everything when I was a kid I saw it in that theater and so um, right now when I was shooting the sequel and I wanted to um, return to that theater uh, unfortunately they were under renovations and had closed and could not grant us access and um, they were going to be closed I think until 2025 or something wow so we had to get the wraparound film shot. So I started to kind of look around in my network and, and, and ask people if they knew of any place. And Lafayette came up as a recommendation and we went there and took a tour. And I said, yeah, this is the spot. And so we secured that location. That was a that was a great, probably the perfect, perfect place for that. Now, final question. And this is a question just, just from someone who's not in the know. But on a filmmaking level, you mentioned the low budget nature of your work. but just from watching this movie, Return to the Theater of Terror, I love the images. The camera works really good. And there are more films that are more expensive than your stuff that don't look as good. So I guess my dumb question is, how were you able to do that? Is it a camera just making your film look rich, whereas the budget is very low mm. and other movies, what are other movies not doing that cost more and they don't look as good as your films? That's a great question. I mean, I I can't speak so much to those other films. I'm not really sure what their limitations are or or um, um, what they're doing differently than we are. Uh, I just I don't I don't want to make a mistake to say that while our films are low budget, the vast majority of individuals that work on these films are very talented, very knowledgeable artists. Yeah. And. So they bring 150% to the film, whether it's the DP concerned about the lenses he's using, the frame rates we're shooting at, the lighting on the location, 
Um, whether it's our actors worried about the motivations of their characters, what they're wearing, what the blocking is, um, or uh, you know, it could be our special effects artist that meets with me six months in advance so that we develop the prosthetics correctly. Everything is perfect for the day that we show up on set. There is nothing that we're not aware of or ready for. These these are really passionate people that understand what we're doing, what we're making. They understand we're not making a picture for Netflix. They understand we're not doing the next HBO Max special. They understand, you know, we don't have a deal with Lionsgate that's going to put our film on, you know, 10,000 screens. They understand that what we're doing is because we love what we're doing. Um, we love doing it together. And um, and so that saves us a lot of money. Um, yeah. There's also I put a lot of thought into how we can do things that I want to do without spending a fortune on it. Um, and there's there are ways to do those things, you know, whether and it can be something very simple. You, you need to shoot a, a scene of cars passing by on the main boulevard with a person crossing the street, let's say. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to say I make this a practice because I do have good relationships with the townships. And, and, and when I reach out to them and they'll oftentimes grant us waivers depending on the situation. But as a, as a production company with a lot of money, you would normally pay all these permit fees and shut down the street with police officers and everything and set up everything the way that you need to set it up. Or you could show up with your cameraman, pull up in a car, park, get out, set up the shot, shoot it, get back in the car and drive away. And that there's there are those little techniques that save you seven hundred, eight hundred dollars permit fees or, you know, so it's 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 things of of that nature. But without even the guerrilla filmmaking side of it, which that essentially is, a lot of filmmakers should learn to reach out to their communities and their municipalities and their administrators and their politicians and tell them what they're doing, especially if you are an independent filmmaker, self-funded or low budget and say, we would love the opportunity to do this and this and this, but you have these rules in place. We want to see if there's a way to get around those. And oftentimes they'll work with you because they want to support the arts. And from where I am in Bloomfield, New Jersey, they're extremely supportive of the arts in this town. And I've been able to reach out to my local officials and 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 it's helped me save a lot of money towards my budget, which would normally be a, a backbreaker for a lot of filmmakers. You know, Tom, and, and last last question, is there a filmmaker that who inspires you as far as your own aesthetic? Because I'm personally as a movie fan, there's this director I love called his name's Joseph Lewis, and he's a very interesting filmmaker. His movies are more visually interesting than a lot of filmmakers with higher budgets from mm-hmm. and he worked throughout the forties and fifties. So I I I would rather watch one of his smaller scale productions than a lot of the big scale productions from the studio. So I love that stuff. But is there a filmmaker that you look to for inspiration who has that clever way of actually or actually you know what smart way of working within the parameters of his or her budget on the spot i don't know if i could name someone that i think works within that um maybe Mm -hmm. hitchcock um but uh inspirational or favorite filmmakers to me i mean i've always i've always really been a spielberg fan and and um but there's there's tons of filmmakers that I admire and that I just love the stuff that they do. Um, I wouldn't I would never go as far as to say that I 
tried to emulate any of them, but I would certainly believe that they've all had some influence in what I'm doing because everything that I'm doing is for, because of things I've seen or felt or heard or experienced in a movie that I, that I, I'm obviously trying to recreate that when I make a film, because I know that those things work now. It's nothing in particular, right? But it's just what I'm yeah. creating is when I'm creating, there's a perspective that I have that I'm sure has been influenced by a wide variety. Uh, George Romero, um, mm-hmm. you know, James Cameron, uh, for crying out, Zack Snyder, people don't like him. There's love stuff him. that I've seen him do that I love. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, it's, it's not always all their work. Yeah. Uh, because we're nobody's perfect. I mean, I think everybody fails once in a while trying to, to trying to do something. And, and maybe when when you fail, you're only failing to fifty percent of the people. To the other fifty percent, it's usually a, a success. So um, I just think that that's a learning process, and um, I continue to learn from things that I see and and, and filmmakers that I see. And um, I, but to just just to say, if there's one uh, in particular, um, probably Spielberg. Um, over time i've just i've just really enjoyed his work and i enjoy his perspective and i think we share a lot of those perspectives of you know the way that we see life or films or whatever like that so i think it's very his stuff is always very cool but there's a like i told you there's a million of them yeah down the list for you tom thank you so much for your time you know can't wait to actually do my homework and complete return to the theater of terror april 21st we'll definitely plug that and also Whenever it comes out on Blu-ray, hopefully Eric will join us and we can have a conversation on physical media and and whatnot. That's awesome. Reach out, man. I'll be happy to come on and talk to Eric and and after you've seen the last two and we can, you know, talk some more. Oh, definitely. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Tom, so much. Thank you, Greg. Well, I am here with uh, Goran Topolovic and you do uh, the the, uh, old school Kung Fu Fest uh, for Subway Cinema. Um, I guess I would start off with... uh, what got you started in doing this? Um, I've done a, I've done a music, like a short, like a small one day music festival uh, back in Omaha. Um, and that was a pain in the ass. And this is at, at least according to the name, your 10th one. So uh, what, what kind of uh, headaches and work goes into putting something like this together? Well, you know, I, so Subway Cinema are, organization uh, started back in uh 99 2000 so we've we've been organizing events uh, since then um and you know our focus has always been on um you know asian popular cinema primarily and the old school kung fu fest it's not annual event uh so but it, it is the 10th edition right so okay uh we're we're also uh you know we launched the new york asian film festival which you may be familiar with back in uh, 2002 so we work on that for a long time uh but these days our focus is more on retrospective programming and uh because none of us you know we don't do this full time right so this this is just a hobby that's gotten out of control so <laughs> I, I think we're you know I, I like by now you would say that there were we 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 know uh all the challenges and have experienced all the challenges of putting together uh you know events right so um traditionally when it comes to screening some of these older films the issue would always be uh you know finding who are the rights holders for the older titles and then what are the screening materials available right so um but thankfully for this particular edition of the old school kung fu fest uh, we collaborated with the uh, Taiwan Film and Audiovisual Institutes in Taipei. That basically they're kind of film archive 
uh, and they've done a great job in, in restoring some of these classic films and also uh, helping us to clear clear the rights and, and get the permissions to, to screen the movies uh, uh, in New York. Yeah. How did the rights work um, for certain... I don't know if you, I would assume you've ran across this, but certain movies like, uh, I guess Friday the 13th would be a good example where no one seems to know who owns the rights to them. Um, but you guys are also a nonprofit just playing the movies. Yes. And so like, if you go, Hey, who's got the rights to this movie? No one can seem to figure out, screw it. We're going to play it anyway. We're not making money off of it. Like what would be the problem there? Which I'm sure is a stupid question, but maybe you could answer it. Uh, I guess you could do that, you know, but there's always the risk of somebody hearing about it and then saying, Hey, you know, we have rights to that or, you know, and then, you know, who has the rights to it? Well, sometimes that's (laughs) the only way to find out, right. To actually announce that you're going to show the movie and then you see if anyone's going to claim that we have the rights. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, to your point, yeah, I guess that's always uh, an option, especially if you're kind of, you know, small operation or, you know, you're not in a, in a big market. Uh, but, um, you know, over the years, you know, we, we've developed kind of relationships with a lot of the institutions internationally and, and in the U.S. And so we all, always try to do our due diligence and make sure that, you know, we do everything by the book. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it's uh, it's 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 also a kind of form of respect. Right. So uh, especially working with the film archives uh, in Asia, they're very helpful when it comes to that. Um, also, like all all the rights issues aside, what what goes into choosing what movies um, you want to pick for uh, each festival that you do? So it's up with cinema currently. There's three of us, and we sort of program by consensus, right? So we we all try to watch everything as much as we can, and then we have conversations and make decisions based on various kind of criteria and our tastes, right? Whatever the um, the, the, the scope of the program may be, but I got to tell you, it's like whatever list we come up with initially, that's not how, you know, what we end up with always in the end, right? Because you would always run into challenges in terms of, let's say, oh, maybe we, we weren't able to, uh, uh, to, to find this film or, or really, we don't really know who has the rights or, or there's some other types of issues. Right. So, um, so programming is a, um, uh, it's a dynamic process, right? It's not just like, oh, okay, we're just going to show these movies and that's done, right? Because sometimes you have to make adjustments depending on what's going on. And uh, and sometimes there's some other opportunities that pop up and somebody learns about, hey, we have this movie that we can show. Okay, let's include that. Maybe it's, you know, worth showing. So, I mean, it's, it's fun, right? It's uh that that's that's part of the of the pleasure of, of programming. And, and, and also part of that is also research and learning about, uh, you know, uh, history of these films and, and, and cinema and, um, and, and, and reading and, um, and, and then having those conversations again, right. With, with the fellow programmers. So yeah. um, we don't always agree necessarily, but we all have our own, um, you know, taste that, that we kind of bring to the table and, uh, you know, try to reach a kind of consensus. Right. So, yeah. Do you have a, like a white whale of sorts that like a movie that you've always been trying to get on and either the, maybe it's a lost movie or you can't find the rights holders or uh, anything like that? So, so, so I don't know. It's like, I, I wouldn't say that there's any movie like that right now, but 
since we have been doing this for 20 years, yes, there have been movies like that, which then just because we've been around for so long, then conditions would change over the years and then we were finally able to get it, right? Or, 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 or someone would find a, a source somewhere, right? So, so right now, I wouldn't say that there's any, any, any movie like that, at, at least not yeah. for me personally, right? you know, but that, that sort of comes with, with the age, you know? <laughs> so. And also, this sounds like a uh, like a fe- like a film festival, like just older movies that you go see. Um, yeah. Do, do you ever do like a newer Asian films to do like a like a Sundance sort of thing? Where uh, you no, I mean in- we we used to we used to do that when we were running the New York Asian Film Festival, right? So I mean, New York Asian Film Festival is is, is still there today, and uh, uh, so it's just a different organization that's that's running it now. Uh, and their focus is exactly that, right? So they're they're showcasing the best of contemporary modern Asian cinema. So they they continue that 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 tradition, and then we we're focused more on retrospective and introducing classic films to young audiences, to younger audiences. Yeah, so because I think they're the great movies that people may not be aware of, or you know they wouldn't know how to find them or access them, right? Yeah, and so it sounds like uh, with the with what you do with Subway Cinema, you kind of. Um, uh, kind of brought uh, Asian cinema, it, it at least made it more accessible. Um, how does it feel that? How does it feel to have that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, hold on the world? That's not the right word. Well, you know, you know. So, so you know, I, I think, I think uh, uh, when when we were starting with this, right? So the Asian popular cinema wasn't that accessible. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't held in any any high regards by kind of the mainstream media and, and the film critics, but all that has changed, right? And and I and I think if we if we have played a small role in changing that, then we have done our job, right? So so basically that was our mission from the beginning to increase the exposure and appreciation for for Asian popular films that that we have known and liked. Yeah. So. Well, uh, uh, last question um, is uh, we got a uh, what's in the box segment, and this is actually kind of perfect for something like that. Uh, We always have people put a movie in the box, which uh, my co-host Bruce will draw one movie out every week, and we'll watch that. Um, What's a movie that uh, you would like to to put in the box that's like maybe uh, really personal to you or something that's underseen that you would like to get more uh, eyeballs on? Uh, so is, is it for, for you to watch or for like kind of how, uh, so it would be, it would be, uh, Bruce pulls out of the box and it's just gotta be something we got to seek out and watch preferably streaming, but sometimes we've had ones where we just have to go find it on DVD somehow. But have you, okay. So let me ask you, have you, have you seen, uh, like, uh, many like a King who movies or, or anything that any of the movies that are going to be in our lineup? No, in fact, that that's why I was kind of uh, excited okay. about this because let's, let's a lot it. a lot of this is a blind spot for me, and I always get excited, kind of digging into new stuff. You can't go wrong with this. A touch of Zen. Oh, we're we're actually covering that next week. Oh, you are okay. Yes. In that case, go for. Uh, well, I mean, there's 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 a. Um, hmm. You can do. Have you, are you covering Dragon in? I mean, oh, we're not we showing not. it. But but that's that that's really the movie that uh, kind of made, made made tons of money at the box office and uh, you know really helped develop the uh, the Taiwanese uh, um, kind of homegrown wuxia film industry. All right, that sounds like a good one. Yeah, 
and, and it's also you know it's it's easy to find right so it's it's also from criterion right. um this this came this came before touch of zen right so oh wait that, are they like uh sequels to each other or uh no but they're they're both directed by king who so okay. you, you see you can see the evolution of his style from dragon in toward that touch of zen because they're kind of bookends in a way um but yeah you can't go wrong with that um i, I mean i would recommend some other ones too but they're not all they're not always easy to find i mean there's there's one taiwanese wuxia film which is called the ghost hill and ghost hill. It, yeah so it's kind of really fun atmospheric very colorful uh wow. you know wuxia um kind of yes i i would kind of compare it to like uh wuxia's doing batman tv show or something but <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I don't know how easy this is to find but this is a taiwanese dvd i got but but i i think in terms of accessibility uh dragon inn is probably a, a better choice all right <laughs> okay all right. Well, Gorn, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. And, uh, I, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you thanks. Cause like, uh, the Kung Fu movies, like all, all these type of movies are very, uh, huge blind spot for me. So I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, break into some of the touch of Zen was one I, I watched this week and mm-hmm. I believe we're doing the, uh, uh, the, the last sword fighter or the some, something, something sword fighter. Um, uh, uh, is, is is it a swordsman or swordsman or no. yeah yeah that one uh, the stranger comes yeah. in and the girl's dad dies and then yeah that that one's uh pretty uh pretty good so far so th- th- thank you for that and uh yeah keep keep it up you guys are yeah th- th- thanks so much eric i appreciate it